This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 30th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Congress and the president have agreed on a massive spending plan just as the United States marks a record week when it comes to issuing debt. Jonathan Bidlack is creator of SpendingTracker.org, which attempts to assign some responsibility to lawmakers who vote for big spending. We spoke yesterday. You know, in the Washington Post recently, uh, Messrs. Boskin, Cochran, Kogan, Schultz, and Taylor wrote uh, an op-ed basically show, expressing a great deal of concern over the debt crisis that they say is at our door. They, they point out that the uh, federal budget deficit will be 30% greater than it was uh, last year. It will reach 870 billion dollars. We've just seen Congress pass a uh, you know more than a trillion dollars in spending. A lot, some of that is new spending. And uh, as we record this right now, we just heard uh, the president go out there and pitch a 200 billion dollar infrastructure plan. And you know, in a way, when you look at how, uh, in particular, Republicans have been behaving with respect to spending, you say, this isn't your father's Republican Party. It's definitely not your grandfather's Republican Party. And it's not even the Republican Party of like, oh, I don't know, five years ago. Right. Right. Well, and, and you know, now we have talk. Uh, I mean, if you want to if you want to look for a moment of optimism, there has been talk about uh, when when Congress comes back from from break voting on a balanced budget proposal, which is great. Uh, you know, now, of course, what that exactly looks like. And, you know, the devil's always in the details with balanced budget uh, proposals. And, and, and you know, <laughs> it's a little bit disingenuous, not going to lie, when it happens to be an election year and you want to go back and be able to have some sort of fiscally conservative talking point to use with voters back in the district. It's great to say, well, I voted for a balanced budget amendment when, you know, I think we all know that that's very unlikely to pass. Theoretically, it's supposed to be paired with a plan for deficit reduction. But uh, again, how can anyone really be that optimistic right now? And so, you know, it's uh, and, 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 and consider the fact that on top of all that, you know, now, I mean, the president's put forward a budget that that budget doesn't balance even, ba- you know, reach balance over the 10 year window, let alone begin to pay down <laughs> the national debt. And the talk is that Congress will likely not even actually propose a budget or, or you know, uh, approve a budget of their own, uh, which is, of course, for many years was the talking point that was used against Harry Reid and the Democratic dominated Senate. So you have this situation where. Um, you know, everything is for show and we kind of know that that's how politics is. That's the game. But man, uh, you'd be hard pressed to say it's been this bad from a fiscally conservative perspective in a, in a very long time. I mean, uh, you know, this latest spending package was the biggest spending package since uh, since the stimulus. Uh, and, you know, a good chunk of that is is new spending. So, you know, I mean, again, most of us are, are supportive of tax reform and, and lowering lowering taxes. But man, when you're doing that alongside massively increasing spending, I mean, you know, look, Milton Friedman told us that's not, that's not a, a, you know, you're not only are you not cutting spending, but you're not really cutting taxes. All you're doing is creating a, an increased incentive to, to raise those taxes in the future. Now, I can, I can understand uh, putting out a, a balanced budget, either uh, a constitutional amendment or some sort of mm. strong fiscal uh, proposal or strong legislative proposal that would uh, restrain spending. But 
it, it seems just tactically bad to me to try to pair that with a plan that has details in it to do uh, deficit reduction, and that might mean spending reduction and tax increases. Yeah, well, and and yeah, I mean, I'm sure there won't be tax increases, or at least there won't be blatant tax increases included in that. But the reality is the, uh, you know, if you think about, uh, I mean, look, we borrowed, I believe it was $200 billion in the month of February. Supposedly, we're borrowing an additional $200 billion just this week because of, uh, you know, increased uh, costs that come due basically at the end of the quarter. So, and, you know, I, I know you mentioned the number of $870 billion. I've heard that too, but I've also heard it could easily be above a trillion dollars this year and certainly going to be above a trillion dollars next year. So, um, the reality is being able to deal with deficits that are that large, and of course, we're not even talking about outstanding national debt and even more importantly, outstanding uh, promises that have been made in the form of unfunded liabilities. That's, um, you know, look, you can't, you can't just solve that problem just by squeezing the discretionary portion of the budget. I mean, look, you could, you could eliminate, for all, the, for all the talk that, you know, we libertarians make about, about Pentagon spending, you could eliminate the entire Pentagon and you're still not even balancing the budget, let alone, uh, you know, uh, again, dealing with those other problems. So it's, um, it's a pretty substantial, you know, pretty substantial problem to deal with, and it's gotten a lot bigger than it, than it was in, in, even, even in recent years. So where is the appetite for uh, any kind of uh, budget reduction? I, see, I can imagine a, in the, a different timeline, uh, not the timeline that we're in, we're clearly in the dumbest timeline, um, where a Republican Party says, look, we're going to go out there, we're going to push this balanced budget amendment we can have arguments later about what actually does get cut and what uh, what taxes look like under that plan, but get it out to the states to actually ratify it and run on that. And I can imagine them being very successful uh, making that a core plank of a party platform for the next at least four years. It's true. It's just a question of whether or not that's what they actually want. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, you know, pretty much all politicians have special interests that want different benefits. And uh, it's hard to, it, it, you know, that may be something that, that uh, you know, the base wants or at least a significant chunk of the base. But uh, it's hard to imagine that that would be there would be enough of an appetite to overwhelm, you know, the other influences that are that are impacting, uh, you know, individual members of Congress on a, on a day to day basis. So, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, it's a it, it does have political value. I mean, that's a lot of our case. And in fact, I mean, I would go one step further and say that, you know, we have these fights that go on in DC all the time about, you know, should we increase spending on this, decrease spending on this? And it's kind of a second order question because we don't ever really address the the bigger point, which is, look, what should spending be? Uh, and then let's impose a budget constraint and then have those fights about where we should spend and how much we should spend um, within the context of the broader the broader budgetary discussion. You know, to the degree that we actually get a budget, um, that budget is often not not enforced or not followed. Uh, and so, you know, the, the the debate that the budget is largely irrelevant. And so at the end of the day, until you get some sort of fiscal rule, some sort of restraint in the system, you're, uh, you're not going to end up with, uh, you know, any different results. The amount of money that the United States uh, taxpayer is compelled and, and bondholder is compelled to devote just to uh, service the debts 
that the United States has incurred is more than the entire federal chunk of infrastructure spending that is being proposed by the president. And it would not take much of an uptick in uh, that those required payments, that is the interest that we're paying on those debts. It wouldn't require much of an uptick for that to be a real disaster for uh, fiscal stability in the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's certainly a fear. And, you know, but I'll tell you an, another angle to this is that you know, we talk so often about the national debt and about deficits. And and look, when they reach this level, it does become a very real problem. Now, now you know, there's, there's this sort of outstanding question of how high do they have to be before they become unsustainable, right? I mean, Greece is not the reserve, does not have the reserve currency of the world. And so maybe as a result, we're able to sustain more. I mean, you know, Keynesians will argue that that right now people are willing to lend money to the United States and it's very cheap to do so. And so as a result, we're crazy not to go and take that those that cheap funding and, you know, invest it in infrastructure or invest it in, you know, uh, <laughs> agriculture subsidies or whatever your thing might be. Um, but the the thing that's lost from these discussions, I think, when we, when we focus so heavily on the debt and deficits is just the cost of spending specifically. You know, at the end of the day, that money comes from somewhere, whether it's people in the future or whether it's people today. And and if government is providing a gooder service that it would be better provided by the private sector, which most reasonable people agree that competition among private actors creates an environment that's more conducive toward, toward providing goods and services in an affordable way, then in and of itself, government spending is wasteful, right? I mean, we could have a federal budget of $10, but if we're taking that $10 out of the private sector and, you know, throwing it into a hole in the ground, um, that's not that's not an efficient government at all. And so, so there's, you know, I think sometimes we focus so much on the debt and deficits. We focus so much on this is a problem down the road. We focus on, you know, oh, these debts have gotten really large, so maybe now it's kind of sort of a problem today. And we ignore the fact that actually... It is always a problem today, regardless of whether or not there's some sort of debt crisis, because ultimately we're taking these resources and throwing them into into things that are less productive. Um, and and so you know that may be helpful in that you know sure you know government probably needs to provide infrastructure or uh, or you know national defense, and maybe there's some you know some some wiggle room on each of those items. But the reality is there are huge costs, huge economic costs today. And we just don't talk about them as much because it's not as obvious to the outside observer. How do we make that real to the outside observer? I know that Milton Friedman lamented the fact that he was in some ways responsible for federal withholding, which is the the means by which all American taxpayers who are are wage earners have this sort of uh, cognitive trick played on them where they actually don't understand how much money they're actually earning and how much the government is actually taking from them. So is there is there some sort of broad policy that, that would immediately sort of shock uh, um, the American taxpayer into understanding this is a real problem and we need to deal with it now? I think there are a lot of potential ideas here. So this is a great example where looking to the states or even other countries is really instructive. I mean, in Colorado, right, we're familiar with the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, where essentially, you know, money is refunded to citizens when 
the the state government of Colorado succeeds in keeping spending uh, below a certain point. So it actually creates a mechanism whereby voters and and, Amer- and you know Colorado citizens see very directly how much they benefit from. Uh, you know, from from keeping spending down. So that's one idea. Um, you know, look, the the connection at the state level tends to be much more direct than at the federal level, more more specifically, just because you do have these budget constraints, right? I mean, essentially, forty eight ish states have some some sort of uh, balanced budget requirement, and so there has to be. And you know, there are ways of circumventing that, but there's at least this sort of expectation that there's a there's a check on on what spending should be. Uh, you know, we don't have that at the federal level. And so either we do need to have something like that or some sort of other fiscal rule. I know plenty of people at the Cato Institute, myself, are, you know, are, are supportive of things like a Swiss-style debt break uh, or other sort of restraints on the expenditure um, side of the equation to, to, to keep things in check. Um, so short of that, which if you think that that's not politically feasible and, you know, it may not be to, to you know, at least in the state that, that, you know, you or I might want to see it. Well, I mean, then you really need, I think, some sort, some form of radical transparency. You know, I know we've talked on, on here before about, you know, our spending tracker where we essentially try to assign responsibility for all of this new spending by cross, cross-referencing the various votes that members of Congress take with the amount of spending that's in that legislation. That's something that doesn't really exist outside of that tool. And so, you know, I think a lot of times people talk about Congress and they say, you know, well, they, they, they love their congressmen even though they hate Congress. And, and a lot of times they, they lament the outcomes that they get in Washington, but they don't know who to hold accountable for that. And so, uh, you know, that's a big part of the motivation behind us building that tool. But I think that that's the other, you know, short of some sort of, you know, broad-based rule type of approach, uh, the only other way you're going to get real restraint is by members of Congress feeling pressure from voters who are educated and understand the extent of the problem and who's responsible for that problem. Jonathan Bidlack is president of the Coalition to Reduce Spending and is the creator of SpendingTracker.org. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 